So I had a request <clears throat> from Rebecca just now, a written apology that she gave me for being a bad role model by showing up late. Um, I guess was at the 6.15's last sitting. She doesn't want you to follow her example in that. And uh, her excuse, which is actually quite a good one, is that she lost her car keys. <laughs> and she thought you should be uh, grateful that you don't have to think about things like missing car keys at the moment. So... Mm. I'd like to dedicate this evening's talk to <clears throat> the memory of Saida Upandita, our teacher who passed away last night that we've been referring to. He's been on my mind today. And I'm not dedicating this talk because I think he would particularly approve of this, <laughs> the talk. <laughs> I don't know what he'd make of it, actually. <laughs> I don't know what he'd make of me even teaching, to tell you the truth. But... Um, but I am dedicating this talk to his memory and to all of those who have preserved these teachings over uh, these many centuries now through their, and through their dedication, through their practice, they really show us the um, power and possibility, the potential of this uh, path we're walking. We might see a retreat like this. I think an interesting way to, to hold it, to look at it, is uh, it's kind of like a, a research project or a kind of field work, like a kind of scientific field work period where we're, we're exploring something. We're exploring, in this case, you could say the field of our study is, is our own mind, body, and heart, this process of being human, and we use this tool of mindfulness, of mindful awareness. That's our, our tool, like our telescope or microscope we use for studying this. And we're, we have this objective through this study to learn as much as we can about what it is to be human, about our own mind and heart, the internal workings there. And through studying this, you could say we're learning about the nature of reality. We're using our own body, mind, and heart as a kind of um, uh, field of exploration for understanding the nature of the universe. Because the same processes apply within this smaller field as they do in the larger field of uh, the universe in all its manifestations. Quite a number of years ago, I watched this uh, nature program on the public television station where I was, it was while my parents were still alive, so quite a while ago, watching with them. And, uh, and it was a show about these um, kind of lizards called monitor lizards. Some of them get to be quite huge. I remember on this show, it was quite striking. There was a, a place, uh, I think, kind of a, a zoo or a study center where they had some of these animals and and some of them are not quite as big as an alligator, but they're really big, you know, six or eight feet long, these giant monitor lizards. And, and they're actually quite intelligent. Uh, that there's a range of, they, they, some of them are quite little. There's a huge range of size within this larger group of, of monitor lizards. And in this uh, show, some of them, they had been trained to do certain kinds of tasks for a reward. Um, 
and uh, they showed, you know, one of the, 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 the keeper there was giving one of them a bath with a broom and a bucket of water, and it seemed to be really enjoying it, and it would come and rub against him to be petted, kind of like a dog in a way. It was, but it was huge. It, you know, it was well-fed, because at another time it might kind of give the trainer the, the eye for a potential meal. You got the sense it might have been big enough to actually eat, <laughs> eat a small person anyway. But in this show, there was one scientist who was, um, this was at least part of the program took place in, in an area in the desert in Western Australia. And there was a scientist there. He was getting to be quite an, uh, quite an elderly person. And he had been studying this one area of some uh, few acres in Western Australia in the desert there for 40 years. He'd been studying, particularly focusing on these these lizards who live there, a smaller version of those giant ones. And he was so, I was so struck watching this by how, um, how excited and interested he still was in, in the field work he was doing there. He was, um, you know, he's just like, oh, I've just started to learn. And, you know, he pretty much knew every plant and animal there very intimately at that point. He'd spent so much time there with them. But he had this incredible connection to the world there and this deep kind of interest where he felt like he was just starting to learn about what was going on there. And I was so struck by that um, quality of interest. Had almost a childlike quality. And if, if you've, any of you have ever spent time, I'm sure some of you, many of you perhaps have raised your own children or spent time with children, maybe teaching in school or around the children of friends. And, and if you spend time with young, especially perhaps preschool-aged children, there's, there's such a wide-open sense of um, wonder and, and curiosity about the world. And, and they're open to the mystery of things and, and to possibilities. And things are not so solid. The boundaries between uh, what we often tend to think of as real and, and imagination, that's not so... Those boundaries are much more fluid, and they're um, they're not so caught in all they know and believe to be true and real. And there's something so fresh and um, you know, points to this quality of what in, in we sometimes in this practice refer to as beginner's mind or don't know mind, a mind that actually is open to uh, learning rather than one that thinks it knows so much. There was a, um, I read in a collection of letters that Albert Einstein, famous scientist, had written to a friend and he wrote this. People like you and me, though mortal of course, like everyone else, do not grow old no matter how long we live. What I mean is that we never cease to stand like curious children before the great mystery into which we were born. You know, this sense of, of uh, a connection to that not knowing, but a curiosity about it all. In another place he once said, I'm not particularly brilliant, I'm just very, very curious. And we do know, we, th- we know so much, we have a lot of information by this time. We've been stuffed full of it through 
our lives and all of the schooling. And, and it's great and it has a lot of value. And it's not to deny that. But it can also sometimes be limiting all that we think we know about life, about reality, about uh, the truth of things. We, we can become constrained. Our world can become kind of solidified in that way. And, and I think sometimes it's really useful to look at ways that we might be able to step outside of what we think we know and all that we believe to be true. The scientists, uh, astronomers and cosmologists who study the universe, very mainstream on the website that NASA, the National Aeronautic and Space Association government program here in the States, they have a website and I read on there once, they said that something like 75% of what is makes up the universe consists of dark matter and 20% plus consists of dark energy and about 5% is stuff that they can actually de- detect through looking at stuff, you know, toasters and planets and people and prairie dogs, they're all, all that stuff, stars and galaxies, that makes up about 5% of what they say has to be there for it to function. So there's all this, most of it can't be seen or detected in any way. And what's, what's up with that? I mean, that's, that's pretty out there. But this is mainstream science, you know, there, there's not a lot of disagreement about this. What's, what's going on? If most of the universe has never been seen or detected or measured in any way, that leaves a lot of room for possibility, I think. There's a lot more there than meets the eye in some way. This is a quotation I've, I've used a lot over the years because I think it's a great description of kind of our attitude in this practice or, the, or the, a great description of mindfulness, really. This is from a, a uh, Catholic priest uh, named Henri Nouven. The spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imagination, fantasy, or prediction. That indeed is a very radical stance toward life in a world preoccupied with control. And I love this quotation because I think it, it is really a beautiful description of mindfulness practice, this idea of a kind of active presence and the sense of trust that things will reveal themselves that are beyond our prediction. Is this a possibility for us to actually engage with our meditation to meet our life from this kind of place, trusting that things will reveal themselves if we allow them to do that? Things that maybe are beyond what we believe to be true or possible or even real. A long time ago, it's probably at least 45 years ago now when I was in high school, I read a book that I know some of you will have heard of, many of you may have read, it's quite famous book called The Teachings of Don Juan. 
by Carlos Castaneda. And and there's a there are a number of things that really were p- important and powerful in that book uh, at that time. There's one quotation that I'd like to share with you that has uh, stayed with me over the years. Before you embark on any path, ask the question, does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it, and then you must choose another path. The trouble is nobody asks the question, and when you finally realize that you have taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill you. At that point, very few of us can stop to deliberate and leave the path. For me, there's only the traveling on paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is to traverse its full length. And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly. And I remember when I read this, and I I just wanted... I wanted so badly to feel something like that, this idea that I might find a path that had heart. I wasn't sure what that meant, but to have this uh, sense of walking it breathlessly, traversing its length. It seemed to me it must be possible. I felt this intuition that that had to be a real possibility. And none of the paths that anyone was offering me seemed like they had any real heart or none that would last. And maybe we've come to this retreat with this, looking for this kind of path, or maybe we're here because we feel like we may have found one. And that's all well and good. And maybe a quotation like that can inspire the mind and open us to the heart to a possibility. But but then we have to go through the day and here on retreat, there may be times when we find ourselves wondering, well, you know, what, what's, what am I doing here? Anyone have that thought enter your mind today? You know, what, what was I thinking? Or what was my friend thinking when they suggested I come here? Remind me to strangle them when I go home. You know, what is, what is all this sitting and walking supposed to be doing? What's up with this? You know, I'm walking a path back and forth. I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. These feelings can come. And what, what's the meaning? What's, what are we doing this for? And we've created this form of this retreat and we use it in order to keep things really simple. We take, we remove a lot of the doing, the momentum of doing that makes up so much of our life, the accomplishing of tasks. This doing that, actually I question if it's really getting us anywhere. We cut that momentum, because that, this doing, this momentum keeps us on the move, keeps us restless. Sometimes I think it keeps us stuck walking a path that has no heart. To go back that, to that quotation I shared, It keeps us in a place where we never or rarely actually show up for our life. And and in a certain way, you could say we don't actually live. It keeps us walking a path that maybe is actually killing us. If we look and see. Henry David Thoreau put it this way. 
I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die to discover that I had not lived. So really the power and the beauty of this uh, meditative practice, this experience in meditation, is that it can drop us to a different kind of level than we usually are living on and and, uh, operating on, a kind of direct, non-conceptual relationship to our life, to experience where we're actually doing, as, as Thoreau said, we're, we're able to actually front to meet head on the essential facts of life. We get to the root or the heart of the matter below our all ideas and concepts through a simple direct connection to our experience in each moment beneath our ideas about who we are, about the nature of things. And opening to life in this way can be uh, healing and transforming for us, profoundly so. It gives us the possibility to see through self-limiting ideas that may be so woven into the fabric of our perception that we don't even see it. We don't see them. We don't notice how they're operating in our lives. But meditation can open us to a reality that is below all of these ideas and concepts and the the beliefs that we hold that uh, are like a filter. We see everything through and we don't know. It's like a pair of glasses we put on and we don't know that we're wearing them. And the consequences of this can be profound and transforming, as I said. There's a quotation very simply speaks to this. I think it's on the wall, uh, one wall here somewhere at at IMS. I know I've seen it here, perhaps with a calligraphy. It's a quotation from a a famous Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Kalu Rinpoche. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. These words have a certain uh, poetic beauty, perhaps. They may strike us that way. They must just, might just bring confusion in the mind. But, but this being nothing, that is then everything, that he speaks of. It's not some kind of non-existence or denial or disintegration. Rather, it points, I think, to the letting go or abandoning of of false or limiting views that bind us, that limit us, that limit our potential. I've been speaking, I began this talk speaking about meditation, seeing it as a kind of a field work, kind of scientific field work, an exploration of nature. And in a real sense, that's what we're doing here is we're observing nature, observing nature as it manifests in our own body, in our own mind, and in the world around us. It's the same thing, internally, externally. It's all just nature. 
We're becoming truly intimate with the nature of things through this practice. I think this may be especially the case in our modern life that that it has tended to make us often feel kind of a certain kind of numbness or disconnection, a separation from from life, from others. At times I think many of us feel this way. People speak about this at times in uh, retreats when I teach. Some sense of disconnection, feeling at odds or uh, um, in contention with our own mind and body, our inner world. And I think sometimes it's this very sense of of disconnection that can, that often uh, is at the base of the motivation that would bring us to a retreat or uh, get us to engage with a practice like this or something that we might call a spiritual life. You know, we tend to speak about nature, the environment as, as out there somewhere. We, we speak of going out, I'm going to go out into it, into nature, so it's separate from us, other than us. This, this separating ourselves from nature, it's, it's a, it leads to all, it's leading to lots of problems for us in so many ways. But it's actually not true. If we really look and see, it's not true. We're not somehow separate. Nature isn't out there anywhere. It's right in here and out there and everywhere in between. We are an aspect of the landscape, part of the environment. We come from it. We're sustained by it, and we will return to it. And I think there's some part of us that really knows this and longs for, um, longs to return to it. Sense of returning home. I think Rebecca was speaking of this sense of going home, returning home, practice taking us home. This is from D.H. Lawrence. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me, that I am part of the earth, my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There's not any part of me that is alone and absolute except perhaps my mind and we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surfaces of water. And really, everything we experience in our own body, mind, in our heart, and in the world around us, it really is just the unfolding of natural processes. That's all we're doing here is observing natural process. And as we begin to really deeply see and open to this, not through the adoption of some philosophy or belief, but through directly seeing the truth of this, we see it for ourselves. We start to let go of ownership of any of it. We give it back. Someone once said, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. Which I think is a beautiful way of directly speaking to this. We let go of claiming it as I, as me, as mine, as belonging to me, as thing, as commodity. 
We see it's all process that's happening by itself. And there's a great relaxation that happens with this. We lay down a burden that we didn't realize we were hauling around. And we, through this, I think, open into the fullness of this being nothing that is everything from that quotation from Kalu Rinpoche. And so we come here on the retreat and, and we spend the day sitting and walking and in-betweening and doing all the things that make up a life. It's not different than our life. It's a little simpler, but it's just, you know, our life is made up of sitting and walking, standing, lying down, eating, drinking, eliminating, doing stuff. That's what we're doing here. And it's not special. And when we sit, we just sit. And when we walk, we just walk. And it's not special. But what is special is that we bring this quality of mindfulness, of mindful awareness to this process. That's what's special. And that's the key to this whole thing, this quality of mindfulness, of mindful awareness. And this is something that, uh, this is a natural ability that we all have. You know, check it out right now. Ask yourself the question, am I aware? Is there awareness? Ask it, is there awareness? The cool thing about asking that question is that you get to always say yes. You cannot ask that question and say no. You might not have been aware You might not be aware in the next moment, but in the asking of that question, right here, right now, check it out. Is there awareness? Yes. And it's so simple, so not special, that we overlook it most of the time. But this this ability to be aware, to actually show up for life, this is a, This is the key to this whole practice. This opens the door to the practice. With this possibility, with mindful awareness, everything is possible. And without it, nothing is possible. Without it, we're just living out our conditioning. So this quality of mindful awareness, this allows us to actually show up for our life. really connect directly with what it is to be human, what nature is. In the words of Thoreau, it allows us to front the essential facts of life. And then we have the chance to learn what it can teach us because it actually can teach us a lot if we're willing to listen. So there's a crucial understanding that I think we, we really need to bear in mind when we come uh, to meditation practice, when we approach this, is that from the perspective of meditation, all experiences are equal. There's nothing that we cannot be mindful of. And on a really essential level, it doesn't matter what's happening. This isn't to deny our preferences, right? Certainly we have preferences. We like calm, peaceful, light, happy feelings, pleasant feelings. 
that's true. But in terms of meditation, there's nothing that arises in our experience, nothing that we can be aware of that falls outside the scope of the practice. And I really hope you're hearing this. And one of the hardest things for us to learn, and we have to learn it over and over, I think, is that this practice is not about having certain kinds of experiences. It's not about attaining certain kinds of special states or or having really pleasant, blissful experiences. Although there are times when this may happen and it can bring energy and it can bring a sense of... um, it can bring faith that something's happening. So it's not to deny that, that that may happen at times. But it's not about that. It's not about the experience. It's about how we're relating to our experience. We have this culture that we live in these days. It's not new. But we live in, in this culture of, of acquiring, of acquisitiveness. You know, we've been, we've been steeped in this sense of getting and having things and experiences. And, and so much of the time, our sense of, of success and happiness and okayness is constellated around this, uh, all that we have gotten, all that we have experienced. Our sense of who we are revolves around getting and having things and stuff and experiences. And we, of course, find that some of this carries into our meditation when we come here. We're looking to get something. We want to get something out of it. Quite a long time ago, I think it's at least 15 years ago, I was visiting in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area where I I lived for 10 years. I was visiting friends there and uh, someone contacted me and said, oh, there's a, there's a, a Dharma talk, a, a meditation period in Dharma talk happening at a, at a place in, in the east part of the bay in Berkeley, California there. And um, said, yeah, if you, can, if you have the evening free, you should come. And it was a teacher that I knew, happened to be a, a very uh, well-known, highly regarded uh, monk, Buddhist monk, a Westerner, but one who'd been a monk in the Thai, uh, for, in the forest tradition of Thailand. And I had spent time in the monastery where he was the abbot and um, he'd been a teacher of mine and I had great respect for him, a lot of affection and respect for him as a teacher. And um, so I was able to go and, you know, we had a period of meditation like we're doing here and in, in that, with those folks in that tradition, they do a lot of kind of devotional stuff. So there was bowing and the lighting of incense and chanting and things like that. And then um, we sat in meditation and then he was going to give a talk and and he gave he had this great opening line that stayed with me now for this uh, all these years. He said, I've been a monk for 25 years now, and I want you to know that I haven't gotten anything out of it. <laughs> That's a great one-liner opening, you know. Woke us up, you know, okay, what's going on? You know, is he, is this his, the preface for him announcing that he's disrobing, or, you know, what's happening? <laughs> could bring a lot of questions in the mind. It certainly got our attention. And, you know, because this, this, this person was, you know, he was a well-known teacher, an inspiration to so many people, and still is, dedicated to following this t- path and living this very, um, 
very austere, simple life in this Theravada tradition that we draw from uh, the monks and nuns who live in that that lifestyle who've undertaken that way of living they they're dependent every day on somebody offering them some food they can't keep food overnight so they don't get to eat unless somebody feels to move to offer some food to them and traditionally in Buddhist countries they go around with a bowl and people put offerings into their bowl they don't own anything but a, an alms bowl and a set of robes they don't handle money They live very, very simply. And you know, he's an internationally known teacher. And, and you know, okay, saying, I haven't, I've done it for 25 years. I haven't gotten anything out of it. So clearly, he wasn't saying that it had been without value. You know, he wasn't living that way just because it was a lot of fun. It may be fun moments, but it's not generally a fun lifestyle. <laughs> fun is not, not so much, at least entertainment's not about that. But he was happy and content and had this air of ease and calm and confidence. And, and so, of course, he was making a point and he went on to say that the value that he had gotten from life wasn't from anything he'd gotten, but from all that he'd let go of, all that he'd abandoned, relinquished. This is from another uh, Western Thai forest monk, Ajahn Sumedho. The way of spiritual life is a movement away from the distraction of attaining or acquiring. It is, a re- it is a relinquishing, a letting go. It simplifies our lives, freeing us from that which is unnecessary. There's no judgment or rejection. It's simply pure mindfulness developing in the present moment. The only place truth can be found. And, and this can be kind of obvious, you know, when I tell a story like this, uh, a sense of, of the value coming from letting go rather than acquiring. But then it's worth really looking at what we're doing. And if we've been at this for some period of time, perhaps for years, some of us, we can just see what are, what are we doing? Because we can spend a lot of time and energy pursuing certain kinds of experiences in meditation, trying to get to certain kinds of states that we imagine is is the goal we're supposed to get there or trying to get back to some state we thought we got to. (laughs) And maybe we have some limited success once in a while for a short time, but none of it lasts and things change. States are subject to change. But it's good to remind ourselves and to not lose sight of the fact that what we really get out of practice comes from what we let go of. And we realize the end of suffering, which is what the Buddha was pointing to, not by getting something, but by abandoning the cause of suffering, by letting that go. It's not from getting to some sublime state. It's not from getting anything at all. Someone I heard once, I think this is probably Jack Cornfield, a teacher in California, who's one of the founders here at IMS. He said, uh, he was talking about meditation retreats, and he said, this isn't the shopping mall, it's the dump. <laughs> it's a good thing to keep in mind here, because you know, we love to go shopping. <laughs> and this, this idea of, of this being the dump kind of runs counter to a lot of 
of our training and conditioning, the way we look at things. You know, we're not so inclined to see letting go as the key to happiness, to freedom. We're not really taught this way of looking at things. And, and yet this is the very thing that the essential facts of life will teach us if we take the time to listen and learn from them. And in this regard, the Buddha once described this practice and his teaching. He said, this runs, this goes against the stream. This is going against the stream, against the way of the world. And we might see this, this stream or this way of the world as, as the stream or the energy of desire or craving. And when we follow and flow with this way, with this energy, we're pursuing objects and experiences, seeking happiness through the pursuit of objects and experiences in which there's this imaginary fulfillment, this promise that seems to be out there. And because we get so fixated on the objects of, our, of the desire, and they seem so promising, we miss the fact, we don't see the fact that this is an endless and ultimately fruitless pursuit because the demands of desire are endless. They're never satisfied for very long at all. But because we don't see this, we just keep at it until we run out of time and energy. And the way that these teachings run against or counter to this stream is that rather than this encouragement to follow this energy, which is really what we're mostly offered as a strategy for finding happiness, you know, what are, we, what are we offered? Mostly, we're told to go shopping or some form of it, isn't it? Let's unhappy, go shopping. Try that. And no one, it's not like someone's trying intentionally to mislead us, it's that nobody knows. And say, well, I don't know, try this. <laughs> try going shopping. And, you know, it's not, there's nothing wrong with going shopping. I, it's fun sometimes. We have to do it. We need new clothes. They wear out. But, but we're going against the stream, or at least what we're urged to do in this is rather than following that, we're urged to really look at it directly and see what is it, where is it going? We're, we're, we get to know it and understand it, not through judging or condemning, but we want to see what, where does it go? And, and is, that a, is there a limitation to that? Is this really a good strategy for finding some kind of lasting happiness or peace or ease or freedom, whatever words we might use to describe that? That I think this, this movement of heart towards happiness or peace, freedom, ease, this is really something that I think we all could say is an aspect of what we're interested in coming here. And so this teaching that goes against the stream, it's the Buddha is saying, you can make a trade here. You can trade a lesser kind of happiness for a greater one. We can exchange this endless pursuit of transient pleasures for a path that, that actually can lead to something deeper, more sublime, and more lasting. And he spoke to this very directly in this uh, verse from the Dhammapada, this famous collection, short collection of teachings in verse form. If by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience a greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. 
And there's a teacher named uh, Tom Jeff who likens this to trading candy for gold. He said, an intelligent sacrifice is any in which you gain a greater happiness by letting go of a lesser one in the same way that you give up a bag of candy if offered a pound of gold in exchange. In other words, it's like a profitable trade. This is, this is a profitable trade. And he refers to an ancient poem uh, in the Buddhist tradition. One of the Buddha's disciples once wrote, I'll make a trade, aging for the ageless, burning for the unbound, for the highest peace, the unexcelled safety from bondage. I'll make that trade. But we mostly want, we want to keep the candy and get the gold because we're afraid, at least we know candy tastes good, even if we are willing to admit that it's a transient pleasure. But this gold, you know, what is it? We don't know what it is. We don't trust it. Because we have to give something up. We have to let something go. There's this renunciation, this letting go. And it doesn't, we're, it doesn't look so good sometimes because this gold, we can't really necessarily see what it might be. We have some sense of possibility there. Bhikkhu Bodhi, the famous translator teacher, said this, to move from desire to renunciation is not, as might be imagined, to move from happiness to grief or from abundance to destitution. Actually, it is to pass from gross entangling pleasures to an exalted kind of happiness and peace, from a condition of servitude to one of self-mastery. Desire ultimately breeds fear and sorrow, but renunciation gives us fearlessness and joy. I mean, who wouldn't want to make that kind of trade? And so this letting go, this renunciation, it's, it's seen as at the heart of this tradition and practice because it's understood as actually the very practice of freedom in the moment. It's seen and described as a practice of joy. It breeds fearlessness and joy. And its ultimate fruit, the promise there is the deepest kind of happiness, that of peace. But the energy of desire does always breed fear and sorrow because it's always telling us that there's something lacking something missing in our lives, some way that we are not complete, something that we need, that we don't have in order to be complete. It's telling us that things are not good enough now, but if we get whatever it is, that we're not good enough now. But the problem is that once we have satisfied any particular desire, it isn't long before the next one arises. It's like, you know, kids at, at some holidays time when they get presents, you know, and they tear them open. And then, is that all, you know, on the last one? It's like, how long is, is that energy ever satisfied? That's such, we see that extreme version of that. But then if we look in our own mind and heart, we'll see something similar. Because the demands of this desire in the mind, the wanting mind, the demands of that are endless. And each desire promises that the thing we get and the satisfaction we feel that that's going to last and be the one, it's finally going to be the one that does us. It's all, there's this sense, oh, now this one, this will do it, whatever it is. 
but it's never really the case. And, and we see nothing really lasts, does it? Nothing lasts for very long. And then how long? And then we're off for the next thing. And, and this, following this, it just reinforces this sense of lack, of need, of insufficiency. As though who we are in some essential way, our, our sufficiency, our okayness is determined by conditions. But the Buddha was pointing to a kind of peace or freedom that is not dependent on conditions in this way. It's not determined by conditions and circumstances. It's not about that. It's totally going in the other way. The Buddhist twin is talking about a kind of happiness that is not conditioned. that's found within how we relate to this world of change. Not by trying to hold on to something that's in the very process of disappearing all the time, over and over. Because there's no real freedom or happiness in that. But our conditioning in this whole realm, our, our, the way we tend to approach things, it's very, very strong. We've been perhaps following this stream, flowing with this stream for, for a long time, perhaps for lifetimes, and we're undoing that conditioning, and that's not going to happen right away, and we see how hard it is. And we see, we sit down and we see the mind moving back and forth between this desire for and desire to get rid of and the mind and heart raging, and we can see it over and over for years. And and it's not something that we're going to let go of overnight. We have to be willing to meet that and, and see it over and over and get to really understand it. And it takes a lot of patience and kindness and care to do this. Because this... This practice and path, ultimately it asks us to meet these minds and hearts and bodies, this thing that we call me, in, in a radically intimate way. And it's not always the easiest thing to do. And at times it can feel like the hardest thing we would ask ourselves to do. You know, it's what we're here for, but it isn't always a lot of fun. And a lot of us have spent a lot of our lives avoiding doing just this avoiding actually this kind of radical intimacy with ourselves. And finding a place of freedom in the midst of that is not, not always easy. It takes courage and patience and, as I said, kindness above all, because there are times when it's going to be easy and feel great and times when it feels like we have to summon everything we have just to show up at all. And so the more kindness and care and compassion we can bring to bear the better off we're going to be. We have to bring this quality of kindness and compassion to, to this process or we, will, we won't survive, we won't be able to stay for the long run. And so often we, we don't actually bring this to bear and we approach the practice, we approach our relationship to our own mind and heart as though we're setting out into battle. And we see our own mind as, as a project as something we have to overcome or, or fix. And we don't have this attitude of making friends with our own mind and heart. 
But this practice requires this intention to understand rather than to judge. This is key. We need acceptance rather than struggle and resistance, and we need kindness instead of blame and criticism. Joseph Goldstein, who's uh, one of the founders of uh, this place, one of the uh, core guiding teachers, in one of his talks he once uh, had a quotation that I believe comes from part of the samurai code in Japan. And it's, uh, it's just a short line. He said, I make my mind my friend. I make my mind my friend. And I think if we get nothing else out of this retreat, out of this, this time here, but some uh, sense, some connection to this possibility of befriending our own mind, our own heart, then our time here will be very well spent. I mentioned that I used to live in San Francisco. This was in the 80s for about a decade. And uh, at one point um, on, on the weekends, I would volunteer with this program. We were studying the migration of hawks, uh, these large birds of prey through the, the area of the Golden Gate there, uh, near where the Golden Gate Bridge is. So a lot of these birds move up and down the coast in their yearly migration. And, and that's a the bay is quite large, but it's, there's a narrow, fairly narrow passage there because a lot of these large raptors don't like to fly over large expanses of open water. And so we were on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge in the, what's called the Marin Headlands. It's a hilly area there, a lot of open space. And, and uh, the hawks would kind of tend to gather there before they decided to fly across heading south or after they had come up from the south heading north. And... Um, so there were at times of the year quite a good concentration of different hawks. Uh, and among them, one of the most common ones is red-tail hawks. Some of you may have seen or know about red-tail hawks, but they're quite a large um, hawk. I think their wingspan can be up to uh, nearly four feet. And we used to um, very carefully uh, trap them <laughs> in these special certain kinds of traps. And, and we would um, you know, take some measurements and check them for parasites and uh, put a band on their ankle so that um, if someone found a dead one or a trapped one, we could get a sense of where they were moving. And, and it was for a good cause to help understand and protect habitat for these animals, beautiful animals. But we had to uh, learn how to how to hold a red-tailed hawk. And they're big and they're strong. And they have incredible talons and beaks. And they can put a talon right through your thumb, nail and all. And uh, so you have to, but they're birds and they have hollow bones. And the last thing you would want to do would be to harm one of them. So you have to hold them with this incredible combination of firmness and gentleness. And I, I tell this story because I think it's, a, it's a, a, an image that I find really useful in terms of how we can relate to our own mind and heart. Where there's this, this firm but very gentle, kind relationship there. Where we don't necessarily let it run all over the place, but we don't crush it or hold it in a way that is too tight. It's, it's that incredible balance of a firm, 
gentleness. So I'll end with a quotation from a, uh, another one of my teachers in Burma. This is from Sayada Ujotika. How can you make your mind your real friend? By practicing mindfulness, by really watching your mind and really paying attention throughout the day. Then you will see the truth about your mind and only when you see the truth, then gradually it will become purer and purer and then it will become your friend. So we can uh, take just a moment of quiet, let these words drift away. So uh, thank you for your <clears throat> kind attention this evening. And we have about a little more than 35 minutes for some walking meditation. And the last scheduled sitting is at 9 p.m. And we will be doing a little bit of uh, a kind of metta practice chanting in Pali. Be very short, simple chant that we'll do um, at that uh, last sitting. And I promise I will end it um, early. So we won't go all the way to 9.30. So uh, please be welcome to come uh, if you have the energy. And you might consider coming even if you don't have the energy. And uh, I think th- there's some people who have a job now. Um, we'll, we'll sit for a little bit before we do the chanting. So if you do have a job right after this, um, even if it's a little bit late, you can come in for that um, chanting. We'll all start it at about uh, 9.10 or so. So uh, be welcome. This is one exception for coming in late is those who might have a job now uh, and want to come for the, for the chanting. So um, please be welcome for that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.